Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. For most of us, it feels like a whole lot longer, but it's been about two months since our whole world really changed. It was back in March that COVID-19 started spreading rapidly in Canada, forcing us to retreat into our homes and stay there as much as possible to keep ourselves and the most vulnerable in our society as safe as possible. We've learned so much about the new coronavirus since that time, but we still have a long way to go. Now that measures such as physical distancing, hand-washing, and staying home have helped to flatten the curve, reduce the spread of the virus, Canadians are starting very slowly and very cautiously to emerge again. The pace differs depending on where you live. In some provinces, like Ontario, stores outside of malls and golf courses are open. In BC and Quebec, students are heading back to school or getting ready to. This is all happening without a vaccine and without a proven treatment for COVID-19. And with the knowledge that this virus has killed many of our seniors in long-term care. So there's some serious concerns here. So today on The Dose, we're welcoming back Dr. Allison McGeer. Not only is she a leading medical microbiologist and a specialist in infectious diseases, she's been heading up a national research group to study how the coronavirus spreads. She's a member of the federal government's National Immunity Task Force. And last but not least, she's a colleague of mine at Sinai Health System in Toronto. Dr. McGeer will help us separate fact from fiction as we tackle the question, how do I keep myself and my loved ones safe as restrictions around self-isolation are lifted? Hi, Allison. Happy to have you back on The Dose. Nice to be with you, Brian. You joined us here back in March when we were first learning about COVID-19. That was before physical distancing was really in place and people were still traveling at that time. Does that feel like a whole different lifetime for you? Some days it feels like a long time and some days it feels like yesterday. It's been really interesting to watch time sort of expanding and telescoping um, over the last few weeks. Uh, But in COVID time, it's a long time ago. We've learned so much about this virus since then. From your perspective, what are the most important lessons our listeners should keep in mind? I think the important thing going forward is to recognize that We recognized in March that we needed to slow the spread down in Canada and a lot of other places. And the measures that we put in place did that very effectively, okay? They're they're working nicely. The challenge now is figuring out which of them are necessary and which of them we can go back on so as to reclaim our lives and the economy and so many other important things. And that's going to take patience and time. And the the hardest part of it is going to be the lag time between decisions and impact because this virus, it, it spreads easily, but it takes time to develop. So anytime you make a change, you have to wait three weeks or a month to really know what's going on. And that piece of it, I think, is what's going to drive us all just crazy for the next few months. Let me flip the question around and ask, uh, of all the things that we've done in the last two months, 
Uh, what are the ones where you say, boy, I'm really glad we did that because, because they were instrumental in flattening the curve? So it's the staying home piece that really makes a difference, right? It's, it's not having contact with other people um, that stops the spread of this virus. And it's remarkably effective. It went from, in, in certainly in Toronto, from being on the exponential curve to flattening right out in, in almost every circumstance. So now's the time where we're saying, okay, just how much contact can we have and not spark that exponential spread again. The the challenges we just don't know how much contact is okay and how much is going to trigger that exponential rise and send us all back inside again. So given that, how concerned are you about the fact that we're opening things up and the speed at which we're opening things up? You know, I think for a microbiologist infectious disease person it's very scary. Um, but it's also essential, you know, that there's just no way we can sit around for the next two years not opening up anything. So you can only do your best to be careful, um, make sure that everybody is doing what they can to prevent transmission while they're opening up and, and watch what happens. The, you know, the good news is we know we can get it back now. Okay, we, we, we understand how to stop this. Um, it's not impossible. Uh, it's just hard. Um, and so, so that's really reassuring. At the same time, because it is impossible to judge how much is enough and how much is not enough, um, any, anybody who's watching this carefully is going to be really anxious for the next three weeks or a month. We have some uh, some breaking news. Canada's chief public health officer just gave the strongest guidance to date about masks, something that's long been discussed. She recommends people wear a non-medical mask as an extra layer of protection when physical distancing of two meters isn't easy to do. How solid is that recommendation? I guess it depends on it depends on quantitation. Okay, so. We know that it's very difficult to predict the filtration capacity of different cloth masks. Medical and surgical masks, those are tested. We know what they do. I think it's a completely reasonable recommendation to say wear a cloth mask because it's really unlikely to do any harm um, and it might do us all some good. You know, what we don't want people doing is saying, well, if I'm wearing a cloth mask, then I'm okay, and physical distancing doesn't matter. Hmm. Um, so I think we really still need to keep the the emphasis on physical distancing. But, you know, if you're taking the subway, you just can't manage physical distancing all the time, and lots of us need to take the subway. So um, I think wearing a mask is a, is a, a really sensible thing to say. It just isn't backed by the data you'd like to have to back it up. Is it about uh, protecting you from others or protecting others from you? So wearing a cloth mask is always about protecting other people from you. But, you know, it's just one more marker of we are all in this together. Um, And if each one of us is doing our part, then the whole thing comes together. As soon as we start you know, differentiating ourselves, not being willing to do our piece, that's when we get into trouble. 
I want to start talking uh, about schools because th- this is certainly on the minds of, of many parents. In, in some provinces and territories, schools are staying closed for the rest of the year, but in places like B.C. and Quebec, students are going back. If parents have the option of sending their kids back to school, what kinds of things should they be thinking about and you know, what measures should the schools be taking? I think what we've seen where schools are reopening, that schools are working at maintaining physical distancing, about being sure that there's good hand hygiene, um, about making sure that if they have staff working there who are older um, or have underlying illnesses, that they reduce their particular exposure. So it's the, the measures are not different, I think, from what storekeepers and hair salons and everybody else is doing. It's obviously a little more challenging with young children where you can't necessarily have the same kind of control over behavior and and kids won't necessarily understand all of the rules well enough to follow them. So again, the, the good news at the moment, and, and there's a note of caution the last couple of weeks because of children who are getting what appears to be an, an immune reaction disease after infection. But but we really still are at the stage where the good news is that for children, this does not seem to be a serious infection and children do not seem to be the people who are um, spreading this disease. From a science point of view, the fact that schools are reopening in some provinces and not others, and in the United States and some states and not others is a very good thing in the short term because it will help us learn how much school opening and closing matters. You know, for, for usual respiratory viruses, school closing is probably really important because for things like influenza, children have a major reservoir and it's spread between children that probably maintains it and, and transmits it to adults. But this virus is different. Um, and school closures may not be that important. And so that's something that we need to understand. And, and unfortunately, the only way of understanding it is by trial and error. We're seeing some provinces in Atlantic Canada, for instance, start to reopen people's social lives through these so-called household bubbles where members of two households can hang out together but must physically distance from everyone else. Is that an effective approach to gradually reopening society and minimizing the spread? It's one approach, and um, I, I don't think we know yet how how that works scientifically in terms of virus spread or how it works from a uh, mental health and psychological perspective. Even if the provinces lift restrictions and allow families and friends to socialize in small groups, there's still the question of whether that should extend to people at risk. Do we need to continue to protect our older loved ones, like to take special measures to protect our older loved ones by staying away from them throughout the summer? Yes, I think that makes sense. This is about balancing, you know, physical risk and mental risk. It's about trying to make sure that, you know, we're, we're letting those people make their own decisions about what they want to do and what risk they're undertaking as opposed to having the decisions imposed on them by other people, right? It's a, a really complex issue of what people think is important. But yes, I, I do think we want to continue to protect older adults and people who are at risk where we can. That involves a bunch of difficult discussions between those people and their family members about what everybody wants. What will need to happen before it's really safe to hug our older parents or grandparents? You know, I regret to say this, but I think it might be vaccines. I, I, I think it's going to be wow. I think two years before 
we're going to be able to do that without hesitating. We need to recognize that in Canada, we're at about probably now about 3% of the population are infected. So we got a long way to go. And I think, you know, we, we're going to need to make some hard decisions about where we want to be. But I think what we've seen so far is that Canadians as a whole really want to protect the population and are at least so far willing to put up with a lot of temporary changes to life while we get there. And as long as that's the decision that Canadians are making about where we want to go, then it's it's going to be a long time before we're back to normal. We will be back to normal, okay? It, we will eventually get through this. It will be over and, and we will be go back to our normal lives and that will be good. Um, but it is going to take a long time. So until that happy day when a vaccine, an effective and safe vaccine arrives, the hard truth is that there is risk. Is there a way to reduce that risk, at least, you know, maybe visiting, but physically distancing from grandparents and not hugging them? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you can, you know, fortunately, we have technology, right? There are Zoom calls. And yeah, you can visit people as long as you maintain your distance and can reduce risk with, you know, good hand hygiene all the time. You can organize your life or the lives of people who are at risk to make sure that they can do things that they enjoy and and see people while trying to keep the risk to a minimum. There's all sorts of things you can do to make things better. You just can't. um, You can't make things normal for a while. Between today's wellness fads and news about tomorrow's medical breakthroughs, it's hard to know what health information actually applies to you. Luckily, there's a podcast that breaks through the noise, TED Health from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts that break down the questions you didn't know you had. Will eating a plant-based diet make you healthier? How does your neighborhood impact your health? How will medical treatments change in the future? Learn all this and more on TED Health. Find TED Health wherever you get your podcasts. And then we've heard concerns about the so-called super spreader environments, you know, places where many people have become infected, long-term care homes in Canada for sure, but choir practices, Zumba classes, meatpacking plants. How do we protect against spread in these kinds of environments as we open back up? You know what, say, I I really hate to discourage people from singing, um, but (laughs) choirs are known to be dangerous, okay, for all sorts of respiratory diseases, tuberculosis, measles, influenza. When you sing in a choir, as opposed to, say, the singing I do, um, you, you're you projecting your voice, and, and that spreads particles from your mouth much more effectively than, than otherwise. So I think, you know, even six feet apart from each other, choirs are probably overtly dangerous. Um, and I know how important they are to people, and I know how important singing is, but it, it choirs are a problem. So I'm, I'm also asking, I'm not just asking about the venue. The choirs are important, and maybe we shouldn't be singing in choirs, but, but the concept behind super spreaders was something that was poo-pooed a couple of months ago. And, and now, you know, there was a study by the London School of Hygiene suggesting that 10% of people with COVID-19 might be responsible for 80% of the cases. So there's a lot of people who don't like the term super spreader, but there is no question that for almost every infectious disease we know, there is substantial heterogeneity infection with some people not transmitting much at all and some people transmitting to a lot of other people. And there are very few diseases for which we understand anything about why that is true, which is 
really frustrating um, because, of course, if you could identify the 10% of people who were going to be super spreaders, then it would be much easier to control transmission. From from my perspective, the, the, the risk of clusters of transmission that we've seen is two issues that are actually unrelated to each other. So the first of them is that when we put in place physical distancing, we didn't do physical distancing well with coworkers, even when we could, okay? And then there are some places like meatpacking plants where physical distancing between coworkers really takes a lot of work, okay? And, and I think people didn't think through it clearly. So that's one problem we've had. And we've had a lot of workplace outbreaks. And the second big issue is that poor people, people that we don't spend money on in our society, live crowded lives. And so any time there's congregate living, any time households are big, any time people are in close contact with each other, you're going to exacerbate transmission. And so pandemics like this one, pick off the most vulnerable in our society. And so you you can immediately recognize that other than cruise ships, okay, which are their own little thing, you know, the 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 people that this pandemic has picked off are people who live in nursing homes, very crowded, you know, high contact environments. Um, not enough training of staff because we don't spend money on it, not enough PPE um, to get there. Homeless shelters, same problem, really high crowding rates, difficult to maintain um, both good separation and good practice. Uh, we're going to see a lot of outbreaks in migrant worker camps, in you know places like Cargill Meatpacking, where it's, it's not just about the environment at work it's also about the fact that these are many of them migrant workers or new immigrants who live in really crowded apartments who share buses or or public transit to get to work these are the people in our society who we do not value um and and who get put at risk whenever there is something infectious and and you know it, it's a poverty and social justice problem it, it's not related to the pandemic. It's just tied in with all of those other issues. So is there any way to improve outcomes in those places like migrant workers camps and, and, and shelters for homeless people? Uh, you know, you have to be willing to invest. I think there are things that are being done in shelters, in nursing homes, um, maybe for migrant workers, that's not as clear to me, to, to try to make sure that things are safer and better. But our, our fundamental issue is that these things need money spent, you know, that, that we need to improve the physical environment of shelters and nursing homes and the places where the poorest of our society live. What will you be watching for in the coming weeks as we open up? The critical issue, obviously, is is there an increase in disease? And the challenge is that the increase in disease will become apparent maybe three weeks, maybe a month after after we start uh, allowing more activity, because it just takes t- you need to get through a couple of generations of viral spread 
before you can actually see the increase. And so if we've gone too far and, and spread has started to amplify again, we should start to see increase in cases a couple of weeks from now. But here's the but, okay? You obviously don't get tested on the first day you get sick. So you need to add in a few days for people to recognize they're ill and get tested because this disease starts slowly. And we've been, we've had so much trouble with testing capacity and reagent supplies and figuring out who to test that just looking at what's happening in testing is still really hard to interpret. Mm. And that might mean that we're waiting to see whether hospitalizations go up and that's a month away. So it's that really long period of time that you have to wait to see an effect that is that is so hard to deal with. So if I understand you correctly, we open things up and hope that three or four weeks from now we don't see an increase in the number of cases and if we're not doing enough testing hope that maybe five to six weeks from now we don't see an increase in hospitalizations and and admissions to the intensive care unit but if we do what do we do then then we shut things down again okay well, let's hope that doesn't happen yeah, a bit more complicated than that i think then we look at that's five or six weeks from now so then we look at what's happening in all the different provinces and what's happening in all the different countries. And that will mean that we know a little bit more about what might be working and what might not be working. So if we have to make those decisions five or six weeks from now, it will fortunately be with more knowledge about what appears to be working. So every iteration of this will be decision-making with additional better information about what we're doing. So there is hope. I'm going to hold you to that hope. Of course, you're not you're not in charge of physical distancing. Um, Allison McGear, thank you so much for speaking with me. Pleasure to talk to you, Brian. That's Dr. Allison McGear, a medical microbiologist, infectious disease specialist, and leading researcher on COVID-19. Here's your dose of smart advice. Physical distancing and other personal measures help to flatten the curve. As we relax those measures, we're opening our society up to more coronavirus and putting vulnerable people at risk. If you're a parent and your child's school is reopening, make sure they have a plan in place to monitor kids for infection and physically distance students in class. I know you can't wait to hug your older parents and grandparents, but the best advice for now is not to do that until there's a vaccine in about two years. Don't give up on physical distancing just yet. Wear a non-medical mask anytime you're out in public and can't stay two meters away from others. Finally, we must remain vigilant for an increase in cases in three weeks or an increase in hospital admissions for COVID-19 in about five or six weeks. Should that happen, it doesn't mean we failed, but it does mean we need to ramp up physical distancing. At The Dose, we'll continue to bring you the best information we can on COVID-19. Next week, we'll be talking vaccines. If you have questions about the coronavirus, let us know what they are and we'll do our best to try and get you some answers. Email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or the other show I host at CBC White Coat. You can find The Dose and White Coat Blackheart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall and me with help from Ariane Robinson and digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. 
I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.